This is KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. I am truly honored today to have uh, somebody in the studio, well, via Skype, who uh, will be speaking to us about a novel that really has been creating waves uh, all over the Arab world and beyond. His name is uh, Salim Haddad. His uh, novel is Guapa, and I have him on the line uh, from London, I believe. Uh, marhaba Salim. Ahlan Ramsey, كيف حالك؟ أهلا وسهلا. أنت بلندن؟ أنا بلندن هلا. إيه. وكيف الطقس بلندن؟ Actually, it's not that bad. يعني برد شوي, but uh, it's not raining, which is good. <laughs> so uh, the book is now out and uh, cannot be uh, sort of <laughs> retracted. Uh, how do you, how do you feel about having done what you did, young man? Well, now that it's it's out and I can't take it back, it feels out of my hands. Um, the the last few months have been stressful. I, you know, when I was writing it, I wasn't thinking about the reaction or or. Or really thinking about the audience at all. I was just thinking about wanting to finish the book. And I feel like I put it all aside. And then once the book was done, I started getting nervous about, I think, with the realization that actually this is going to be read. And so the last few months have been tough. But since it's been released, I've just been overwhelmed by how positive the feedback has been. And that's been great. It's been fantastic. Yeah, because we need to tell uh, our listeners who may not have read the book yet that this book is uh, groundbreaking in so many ways. It is, first of all, your first novel. And not only is it a first, it's one of the few Arab novels that I have read in which you uh, deal very frankly about the topic of marginalized sexualities in the Arab world, specifically gay men in the Arab world. Uh, you are in uh, London and the reaction has been okay so far. So far, the the reaction has been okay, and I hope it stays that way. I don't know. I mean, I feel like, I feel like someone has to to write something like this, and my my rationalization for it is that life is short, and you just have to really go for it and and express yourself in some way. And and this book was inside of me for a long time. I feel comfortable with with putting it out there at this point. And of course, the fact that you are uh, well Lebanese, Palestinian, Iraqi, and German puts you in a unique position to be able to broach this topic. You are appealing to the Arab world and to the West at the same time. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think I don't really fit into one specific country or location. I think that gives me a bit of protection in a way. I think, you know, you know, <laughs> different countries can distance themselves from me if they like, and, this, and different countries can also claim me if they like, and I'm happy with either. But yes, I mean, I think also having the German in me helps make <laughs> me a bit, you know. <laughs> yeah, but that's only uh, a quarter, uh, Salim. You are three quarters uh, Lebanese. Palestinian, right, and Iraqi. Exactly, and I grew up in the Middle East. I mean, I grew up in Kuwait and Jordan and Lebanon as well, so I've yeah. got it all in my blood. <laughs> in fact, you were born uh, in Kuwait to a Lebanese-Palestinian father and an Iraqi-German mother. You have been an aid worker, researcher, and writer. You currently work at uh, Safer World as a conflict and security advisor, and uh, previously you've worked with uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, Jordan University Center for Strategic studies and other places. Uh, how much of that work experience has informed your writing? Well, I, I don't work for Safer World anymore. I left them last year. I spent a lot of time in Yemen uh, working in uh, various refugee camps and also negotiating aid during the, the wars that happened
and there in, in 2008 and 2009. And so I think I was exposed to a very different side of the Middle East that I think most people in my class bracket are not as exposed to. And a lot of these issues really fed into the novel. I mean, the novel itself, it's, it's a novel that's centered around a gay character, but I don't really like to see it as a gay novel because to me, it's a novel about so many other things, including politics in the Arab world and, and the connections between how countries are governed in the Arab world and how societies are governed and also how families are governed and how that, the link between the personal and the political. So I think it was, it was a mixture of my own background, my own uh, personal life, and also my experience engaging in, in the politics of, of the Middle East. We should also tell our listeners that you chose to uh, locate your novel in an unknown Arab country. I, I was, when I was writing the novel, I kept jumping from making a decision that I would place the country, uh, write the story in Egypt and then decide, no, actually, I want to write it in Jordan or I want to write it in Syria. And it just felt that the story that I wanted to tell couldn't really fit into these narratives. And so I thought it would be interesting, just like the main character himself is very confused over his identity and is refusing to be categorized, that the country that he lives in would also not have a very fixed identity and would be refused, you know, would refuse to be categorized. So I thought that the, that parallel would work quite well. And in a way, Salim, would did that uh, help you avoid criticism from one certain country that may have felt targeted otherwise? Exactly. You know the Middle East really well. <laughs> that's, that's a very practical reason also for not naming the novel. I mean, ultimately, I, I live in London, but I spend about half my time in the Middle East, and I want to keep it that way. And so I think also this is a way to make the story accessible to a large group of people without really picking out one country. I really did not want this novel to be an anthropological study of one country. I didn't want it to be an analysis to say, okay, this is what the gay scene looks like in Egypt, or this is what the gay scene looks like in Lebanon. Because as you know, these things are very private, and there are, there is lots of issues around what you can and can't expose. And so I, re I thought I would just capture elements of, of the different scenes that I've encountered myself. Um, and that way, you could also protect the privacy of people while also shedding a bit of light on some of these dynamics. And so the book title Guapa is actually maybe a fictional name of a, uh, well, a bar or a coffee uh, pl a place or somewhere that's safe where marginalized sexualities can uh, maybe hang out. Yes, exactly. I mean, I've, I've seen bars and coffee shops like this throughout the Middle East. And, and for me, I find them very politically important places. You know, they're a place for, for young people to gather, be, be away from their families and their parents and sit down and talk and debate. And I mean, I remember growing up Myself in the Middle East, you know, bars and coffee shops were a big part of my own upbringing. And so, and my own sort of socialization and politicization. So I wanted to try and celebrate that aspect of youth culture in the Middle East. I hate to use the word authentic, but in a way, I mean, you are open about your own uh, sexual orientation, Salim. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, in a way, I think that's why a lot of people have jumped into trying to read the uh, novel, which is written by an openly gay Arab man. You have mm -hmm. chosen to do that and in that way you have enabled us to go on this little journey with you through the fictional novel into these spaces that people may not be aware of. One of them of course is Guapa but Salim in your own experience or perhaps from in the novel isn't that space also ultimately very dangerous? You mean you mean for, for those spaces in general rather than for me personally? Well I mean uh, in terms of you having lived and seen the subculture in uh, many uh, Arab countries where there is a sort of a, a 
vibrant uh, uh, scene for marginalized sexuality. It's only it's always happening underground. It is a safe space, Guapa, but at the same time, isn't it also a very dangerous space because you're kind of dancing between uh, the safety and the danger that looms if you were caught? Yes, I, absolutely. I mean, it is it isn't a safe place. I think this is a symptom of a much larger problem in the Arab world, and that's impunity and lack of accountability and uh, abuse by people in power towards people who don't have power. People who uh, don't, uh, you know, who are queer might be marginalized, definitely, but so are people who are poor, so are refugees, so are women, and so are immigrants. I mean, there are a number of different categories of marginalization. And when you look at the source of it, it often points to the same thing. It's this wider culture of impunity, patriarchy, etc. And so I think these things are all connected. For me, I think a big part of my novel and a big takeaway that I learned personally from my work with young people and with women, so much of, of the solidarity work that is very important is about building bridges between these marginalized communities. And the spaces where queer people uh, exist in are under threat, but so are many other spaces that are not necessarily queer in, in the sexuality sense. And you've spoken about that in an amazing interview with Muftah.org. I'm drawing a little bit on that interview when and, uh, I ask the next question, which has to do with how to identify or explore the concept of a queer identity or a gay identity in the Arab world. Uh, I, I mean, I, I can speak from my own personal experience, uh, very frankly, about some of my frustrations with, with, with this identity. And, and it exists on both sides, right? Queer people in general in the Middle East are stuck between, you know, authoritarian regimes who use their bodies to bring people together. I mean, when you look at the case of the Queen Boat incident in Egypt when 52 gay men were arrested on a boat and they were humiliated and paraded around basically to uh, give the the Mubarak regime at the time some level of moral legitimacy. You you have also queer people are under attack by Islamists in, in various forms and I think it's not Islamophobic to say that. Queer people are also marginalized and have their voice taken away from them by Western human rights discourses that try to take this gay narrative and enforce it on something that doesn't necessarily fit very very easily. But then also you have, and this is something that people don't talk about so much, is you have the sort of anti-imperialist crowd, especially in uh, you know university campuses in Europe and, and the US, who will then criticize gay activists in the Middle East, calling them naive agents of colonialism for embracing quote-unquote gay identity. But I was thinking when you said that about Joseph Mashad and yes. uh, the book Desiring Arabs, uh, which uh, it was translated as Ishtiha al-Arab. <laughs> The thing that frustrates me about him is that like growing up, I've had quite a few straight Arab men who think of themselves as progressive, quote Joseph Mas'ad back to me hmm. as a queer Arab and say, you are too westernized because you identify as queer. And this is the proof, you know, what Joseph Mas'ad says. I find it a very interesting argument, the argument that Joseph Mas'ad makes about the gay international and the use of the LGBT discourse as part as a tool of imperialism. But it's also a very dangerous argument. And so I think people should identify however they want. There's a different argument to be made around local NGOs. Mm-hmm. For me, the, the danger is when, when, when Joseph Massad's arguments are then used to attack the work that queer activists are doing in the region. And it's often these queer activists who are at the front line. Salim, you seem very comfortable with uh, stating the, uh, the two words, gay, Arab. And that leads me to the question about what is an Arab gay identity and what terminology is currently being used 
used perhaps to counteract words like khawal and luti that were used in back in my day. Yes, and I know khawal and luti were used in, in my day as well. Respectful terminology is still at the very early stages in the Middle East when it comes to homosexuality, but I think there has been some some movement and some media outlets have picked up on the word mitli, which uh, means homo, and so some media outlets have begun to use that term as a more respectful reference rather than shad or something like that. There's also been a push for uh, words like queeria, which is a derivative of queer. I think that's been less successful. In in my own novel, I think, you know, there's a scene where the character is looking at, looking at himself in the mirror and he's trying to identify different words and trying to see how they fit. So he uses gay and he doesn't feel like it fits very well. And then he uses luti and then he uses khawal and then he uses, I think, mitli. I can't remember all of them, but he finally settles on shad, which to me, I think is a very interesting word because although it's historically quite a negative word because uh, it means deviant, I think there's, there's an, for me, there's an element of beauty in deviance uh, and a recognition that we're all different and we're all deviant in our own way. And I think there, I would personally push for, for reclaiming the word shad because I, I think it's very interesting. Maybe perhaps the way the word queer has been resurrected and uh, subverted uh, exactly. in the West. So uh, let's look at some of the uh, characters that you have brought to life in your novel. We've got, of course, Rasa, the, the main uh, protagonist here, who is in love with Taimur and sort of having a, uh, a forbidden relationship there. Now, I don't want to give the, out the plot, but, <laughs> uh, but I find these moments of sort of these secret stolen moments together for the lovers to be extremely well written and expressed in your uh, novel. How much of that passion do you think is generated by the fear of the, the word aib, the word haram, and being able to go uh, against that word in a subversive way? I think it plays a huge part, and I would say that it also plays a huge part in, in Rasa's own attraction to Taimur, is his unavailability and the fact that, you know, he Rasa recognizes or feels such intense shame about this desire, and he also sees Taimur himself feel this shame around this desire. And I mean, I think there's there's a scene where one of the characters, I can't remember who it is, talks about the very close relationship between fear and desire, and you desire what you fear, and you fear what you desire. So I think the, t- the taboo aspect of their relationship in the environment that they're in does strengthen and make it a lot more intense. So, Salim, um, uh, I would like to uh, take you a little bit outside of the um, uh, novel and to try to contextualize it within the, um, well, the context of the Arab Spring. Uh, uh, and one question I had was whether you think that any kind of gay liberation in those countries would have to necessarily go hand in hand with the feminist movements or other movements that deal with human rights in general. Uh, yes, absolutely. When you when you look at the way homophobia is expressed in the Middle East, it is very much about patriarchy. And so any movement for for the rights and protection of queer people is very much linked to the rights and protection of women and, and equality, you know, between between men and women. And I think there's also a very important element around how the solidarity can be expressed between these different groups. You know, I worked a lot in Yemen during the revolution, and I have a lot of friends who are youth activists in Yemen, and one of the most interesting things for me was observing how the women in such a conservative society took part at when we're at the forefront of the protests, and the way that they articulated their own involvement in the protests. They didn't want to take up this discourse of women's rights, and in fact, they, many of them distanced themselves from it. Instead, they articulated it as, we are humans, we are all humans, we are all suffering under the same laws, under the same systems. 
and we want equality and justice and dignity for everyone. And that was how they articulated their, their fight for equality. I mean, obviously, Yemen now is, is not doing too good, but at that moment, it was, it was one of the most inspiring things to actually see this play out. So I think, I think when we, when we look at what queer people can do in order to have some protection, I would say it's, it's very important to actually look at the source of where our grievances come from. And, and they are linked to patriarchy and they are linked to, to things like women's rights. And you've managed to sort of address and broach all these issues in a very gripping book, beautifully written, Salim Haddad. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> are we working on uh, an, uh, the next novel or is it too early to ask? I am working on, on a story, but it's, it's very different from, from this current one. Um, it involves art and Iraq. So that's all I'll say for now. <laughs> and is Guapa going to be translated into Arabic, Salim? That's my hope. It's definitely a goal of mine. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here on the Arabology Show. Salim Haddad, I am uh, elated to have spoken with you. And thank you for your precious time and for your amazing input. Ahlo, Ramzi. It was a pleasure.